I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. So great to be with you again. Today we have a returning guest and that's Al Kingsley who was previously on the show on episode 208 and that was talking about digital strategies for school. But today we're going to be focusing on how business and education can work together in the best possible way for the young people that we're supporting. Now, Al describes himself as a man of two hats, the one where he's the CEO of an EdTech company, NetSupport, with almost 30 years experience in commercial and education technology. With his other hat, he has this passion for education, in particular EdTech, governance and raising organisational performance. And Al has undertaken numerous roles in education, including being chair of a multi-academy trust and of the Alternative Provision Academy. He is chair of his region's governing leadership group and chairs the regional SEND board. With over 20 years of governance experience, Al also sits on the Regional Schools Commissioner Advisory Board for the North of England and East of England and is a Fed Council member. He also chairs his Regional Employment and Skills Board. No better person to have a conversation about how business and education can work together for the better of all of our children. As always, we have links to the people that we talk to on our show notes, but make sure that you go to lkingsley.com to find out the, all the range of things that he's doing and how he can help and support you. Hi, Al. Thank you so much for joining me again on the Education on Fire podcast. It's been a little while since we chatted last time, but I thought this would be an ideal opportunity to chat around a few things in terms of business, in terms of education, the, the working together in that environment. And I think this will be a very interesting discussion. So, yeah, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Always have a good chat. So looking forward to it. So just give everyone just that brief reminder in terms of the the type of organisations and businesses that, that you're involved in, because I know they're, they're very wide reaching. I, I could summarise it as Al Edu Sponge, I suppose. But the, the serious bits that wrap around that is last 30 years, CEO of an edtech company specialising in classroom orchestration, safeguarding, IT management, all sorts of different tools. Uh, in parallel, uh, chair of a multi-academy trust, an alternative provision academy, sit on the Regional Schools Commissioner's Advisory Board for the East of England, apprenticeship ambassador, chair of SEND board for our region, all things education. I'm a big fan of lifelong learning, and I think there's plenty of ways that we can roll our sleeves up and actually facilitate that, that process. And I really like that sense of, of being able to bring all that experience in from so many different angles, because I guess that gives everybody on whichever board it is or whichever company that you're involved in, it gives that perspective, that sort of perspective in the round, I guess. And it's only when you do that and you're chatting to everyone where they're meeting you that you can kind of really make a bit in, big impact. I think there's an element of that. I think there's um, something that's very easily dispelled once you get involved that, you know, you can bring experience from the commercial world to benefit education. Well, actually, if you're smart, you can bring experience to benefit education and also learn lots in education that you can bring back to benefit in business. And if you if you go into any of those kind of 
forums, groups of people with the with the assumption that you, that you've got lots to share, you often miss the opportunity to learn. Uh, and I think finding that balance, yeah, I, I certainly consider myself very fortunate that I've got a really nice mix of perspectives that I've acquired over over many years. Um, but I think the more places you get involved in, the more probably back to my edgy sponge point, Mark, the more you pick up great insights and nuggets of wisdom from others that you can then take and share with other people that you meet elsewhere. So um, I, I probably shouldn't claim ownership to too many great insightful ideas, but I'm, I'm quite good at sharing them around. <laughs> and, and I guess we should then, you know, we should talk about social media and Twitter and, and, and that kind of networking thing, because mm. I know that is the place that so many people get to share these things and you, you learn so much from so many people. Yeah, I'm a big fan of social media. I suppose in many ways, the last couple of years, we've, we've, we've moved to less face-to-face -face interaction and more ways to digitally consume information. You know, most people have got busy lives. So actually trying to sit and read lots of extensive information is, is not as accessible as just getting those key bits of information. So on one sense, whether I, I think of, you know, whether it's podcasts, videos, nuggets that you can listen to whilst on the move, alongside you know what's the number one thing that we can absolutely do um, in education and that's really about how we can be reflective and share best practice so developing and building a pln is i think is absolutely key and back to that learning from education in business you know we're very quick in business when we've got a good idea or something's worked well to wrap it up and keep it as our special secret for our business success and in education the natural reaction is to take something that's worked well and share and it's it's quite refreshing frankly and um yeah, we, uh, there's always been a narrative on something I'm sure you'll, you'll have been heavily involved in about really looking at that evidence base about the role of technology in education. And one of the best places of evidence is actually peer-based evidence, actually going out there and seeing who's doing what and what's worked well. And that's that for me is is absolutely key to uh, to really developing and also finding the right support network as well. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? You can you do have the opportunity to to like I say be that sponge take on all of those things and then you can be selective based on the information that comes in you can take on board what you think is going to work for you you can you can not worry too much about the other stuff and then within that you start to build up your own network and, and actually then create the environment that you want within your school and within your practice and actually then I guess you've got a good almost sort of set of mentors around you that can help in guide and and then you become the guide and the mentor as well as, as everything starts to expand. I think absolutely, it's, it's really, really key. If nothing else, even if you think you know all the answers, you need a, you need a, a sounding board and a leveler. And, and actually, the, the bigger your network is, the quicker you realise, no, you don't know all the answers. Nobody does. <laughs> and of course, as we very much learn it, both in business and in education, no two institutions are the same. Just because it worked in one school doesn't mean it'll work in another school. It depends on your cohort of staff and students. The one message I always try and encourage is, if you engage and you listen and you learn, if you take the edgy sponge role, I do think equally you have to take that moral purpose to share in equal measure back the other way. You know, it's a two way street. And I think many in education, that very much is at the, is at the cornerstone. So it works really well. So when I was at BET earlier in the year, one of the things that got me very excited was um, I had a conversation with um, Professor Gare Grouse and he said, what we need is this kind of person to kind of take on board the mantle of kind of being a guiding light or a mouthpiece if you were um of of how education can change how the system can morph and and how we can start to work together with a real vision i, I think mm. you know there are lots of people who, who want things to change and be more supportive for people in education but the sense of actually 
bet specifically, there's lots of people talking really excitedly about how the things that they're creating and how they're supporting schools and people within education saying this is fantastic this is really changing our life and of course after the pandemic you know the tools and situations and, and ideas which have really helped people but then it's very easy to then sort of go away and then things go on and a week goes by and a few months yeah. and then the next year you're there and, and they're in they're in they're in the same position so um Tell me your sort of initial thoughts in terms of, of how, in your experience, the idea of, of businesses and education can work together in that sort of sort of visionary way of maybe just sort of turning that ship a little bit to work a little bit more in hand in terms of what businesses um, generally need from, from pupils and children coming out of education and also how they can support that sort of change going into education well you've set me off now one, one of my hats this is an in, hopefully an interesting one well, i mean one of my hats that i wear is um i chair the employment and skills board for for my region uh, and one of the, the the roles within an employment and skills board is is, is looking at, at how we marry up the skills acquisition of our young people young adults sometimes not young adults but skills acquisition alongside what our employers and businesses need in an area that's how we get the economy thriving and we have people that are empowered to be self-sufficient and happy in their lives in many regards uh, and it becomes a little bit of a chicken and egg you know it's kind of like well are we going to predict the future of what skills we need in jobs versus uh, why should businesses dictate what they need versus what young people want and actually lots of these conversations and actually it's more than conversations are already happening uh, and one of the reasons why I get involved in so many things is because you see these different pockets. So, so if I try and connect the dots, you know, we recognize that much of the way we talk about things have changed the last couple of years in schools with the role of technology, and for example. Actually, the bigger narrative is around this, this push and pull between knowledge acquisition and skills, I believe. And it's about that breadth of skills that, we, that our young people acquire. And we've had this conversation about, well, will schools flip back post-pandemic to a traditional way of doing things? Will those skills be lost or not in the digital sense, certainly? Um, and actually, the truth is the die's being cast because businesses have had a similar, probably a more extensive, that paradigm shift of actually the working world is more digital. It's more diverse. The geography, the boundaries have gone. And for me, that's huge when we think about place space building around towns across the country because suddenly we've got young people coming through schools in areas of high deprivation where jobs might be quite restricted to particular employers in the sector that employ a large proportion of the community that suddenly now there's the potential with the right skills to apply for jobs all around the world and work from wherever they may be and that then facilitates their kind of foothold into the career path of their choice. So when we talk about them and think, well, OK, so we, we know we need to have more skills, but at the same time, there's huge pressure on schools to really focus on those core subjects. And schools have very little wiggle room in terms of time during the teaching day to actually fit those things in. So there's another really, really fantastic group working called the Fed, the Foundation for Educational Development. Now, that is a group of loads of really, really experienced leaders from within education, from government, but also from business. And what the Fed is looking to do is create a long-term plan for education. One of the premises, or one of the challenges is often when we look at change, and there's too much change in terms of government, top of the tree, changes and tinkering with the way that we, we deliver our education, is often investment comes with this hidden price tag, which is we want to see a result within an election cycle. It's we want to announce a great plan and change, and then we want to deliver that change. Whereas actually what we need in education is a long-term plan that isn't politically 
focused. It's, it's a long-term thing that allows stability and planning. In the same way as when we get a short-term budget boost, some extra funding, it allows us to buy something or hire something, but it doesn't allow us to employ and commit long-term to extra resource because we're always never sure what the next stretch is. So part of that Fed remit is not just looking in terms of what's the most important foundations in terms of curriculum and education, but it's also about the impact and strategies for developing place-based improvements. It's about inclusivity and equity and accessibility. It's also about looking, looking beyond. So whether it's not just England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but looking beyond to high performing school systems around the world and trying to identify what makes them high performing. And without me going down a rabbit hole, so apologies for anyone listening, thinking, where's he going with this? Yeah. One of the big measures around the world, we have a league table, think something like PISA, for example, where we take a snapshot based on certain core subjects of 15 year olds, is actually what is our new measure of high performing school systems? And there's loads of work being done um, from OECD and others, actually looking and saying, we're redefining that measure of what is you know, high performing, what is a great educational experience? Is it purely about attainment and retention of information? How would we perhaps measure acquisitions of skills, whether it's digital skills, confidence skills, speaking skills, challenging skills, critical thinking skills, whether it's about the breadth of education, the experiences, how happy a child is. There are so many other variables that you kind of mix into the pot. So I kind of feel like, well, we've got these levers. We've got one area where we can look at a long-term plan where we can bring lots of voices together and business plays a part in that. And then we've got that part at the beginning, which is, well, if what we're trying to shape in education is slightly crystal ball gazing and slightly more informed than that, identifying what skills we're gonna need in five years, 10 years, 15 years from now in the workplace, rather than employers say, I can't recruit the right people, we don't have the skills in the area. There's an opportunity for recruit for employers to actually feed back in and provide some of that nurture and stimulus in schools within their catchment or in their region. Now that can be at the exit point by being uh, sponsors and supporters of apprenticeship schemes where young people can move straight out of school into the workplace, acquire additional academic skills, but also be working on the job and earning at the time. It can be about actually helping shape specific degree level apprentices, working with universities or other providers that are very specific about the skills of a particular sector, whether it's green tech or green economy, whatever it might be uh, around those areas. There's opportunities like myself, as well as being a, a mat chair, I also get involved delivering STEM sessions in classes, getting involved in interview practice, challenging, providing exposure to let's create a theoretical application and how would you develop it, market it, research it, design it, all playing to different strengths that young people might bring to the table. And I think that's where many of times when I talk about the different hats I wear, I kind of throw it back to others listening, which is if you're an employer and you're struggling to recruit, is it right to always point the finger outside of your organization and say, well, it's down to this, this, this and this? Or is there an element of being reflective and saying, well, maybe there's things we could do earlier on in the process to actually support the education system, support teachers with some specialist skills and experience that actually might facilitate closing that loop. And one of the things that I, I really liked about that is, you know, that hands-on approach and the being able to, to go in and actually, like I say, deliver STEM um, projects and that kind of thing. In terms of sort of this idea of equity and this idea of giving everyone like an equal opportunity in those things, 
I mean, for example, a school that you may go in to do that mm. is great if they happen to be near you and that. But if you lived in a different place, obviously they wouldn't necessarily have sort of that direct access to you in that way. But do you think you, we just need lots and lots of these things happening, which I guess is a little bit more of an old fashioned way that, you know, you you learn from the people that are around you. So you we need lots of businesses and lots of local people just being immersed in their communities and giving what they can but i guess on the other side of that because of the technology that we now have you can also learn globally as well should you you want to sort of go in and sort of amalgamate the online route as well yeah i, th I think there's there's marginal gains there's, there's there's definitely a role for both when it comes to play space um, i was listening to um head of, of a school up in the the northeast who was talking about that their school most of the young people that when they left school all fed out of there into a well-known car manufacturer's factory that was at the end of the town and pretty much most of the adult population worked in that town in, in that factory and that with the advent of technology whereas skills used to be mechanical and mathematical now increasingly they're trying to encourage right in the early years at primary um, IT skills stem skills because the manufacturing process now is about robots and technology and so there's one aspect of building that cohesion and that was a good example there where the, the employer was getting involved with educators and schools where you can develop skills that make those young people have better opportunities within their own town or region because their skills align more closely with what the employers are looking for and then there's the second part which is you know come on we've just proven the last 18 months we can interact we can share we can work together we can collaborate wherever you are in the world if I set a project about app development, the first thing is people go, yeah, well, that's great for those children that are studying computing. But think about it. Our first thing I do is I'll sit down with students and say, what kind of app would you like to develop? And, and it might be some of the great examples. Well, I'd like to develop an app that when I look at a piece of clothing, I can have it as augmented reality and it shows me wearing the outfit. And it's like, okay, so we've got design here. We've got marketing. We've got user experience. We've got the concept of social media and how an app might look and feel and how we might promote it. But we've got visuals, we've got graphic design, and of course we've got coding that goes in there as well. Actually, we're playing to think of a normal company. We've got a sales team, a marketing team, a support team. We've got our PR team, we've got our technical teams. All those skills, actually, when you align it with a group of, of young people, you'll find that they'll all have different traits or strengths that will align them down different pathways. And you can do that online. I think what we're learning is actually some of the tools that we've used to interact within our individual schools or across our map, we need to be more relaxed about using so that we can share what we're doing on a broader platform. And, and that's evolving. There are some schools I, I know even recently have had their GCSE revision classes during half term and they did them back with the kids coming into school. And it's like, you could have recorded that, you could have shared that with the 30, 40% that didn't come in for the revision classes and that would have been available and a resource for future. But habits take time to embed. But I think it's the same as a business. You know, I try and make sure we do lots of video content so that not only do we do something where there's a, an audience on a particular time, but there are others can pick up and find it on YouTube and can utilize it. And I think that's what's evolving. And maybe now, sometimes it's more about finding different people, probably back to our social media 
conversation, get the right PLN and they'll help you share and curate and find the kinds of resources. Anybody got any good examples of any STEM courses that might inspire my my uh, my year 11 group? Yeah, I saw a video here and I saw a course there and, and it starts to come together. Because in truth, the biggest challenge now, I think sometimes is um, not that there isn't content, it's just finding it. It's having the time to go out and find where the best places are to go look. Yeah, well, that's a fantastic point because that's definitely something which I've been thinking about. You know, having recorded over, well, 250 plus episodes, it's that kind of. I, I speak to lots of people who have either been in the in the education system and, and then realized there was something they were really passionate about that they thought they could help and bring in and support with. Um, and I sort of have access to all those people, but at the same time, obviously, still teachers and people within education listening as well. And it is that kind of marrying up. But like you say, it's very easy for that to be suddenly sort of blown up on a on a podcast release day or within the first month or so. And then it kind of dispels again. And I think actually a lot of it is that cohesion and, and that idea of, you know, where's that information that's not only there and available to me, but that I also know is going to have the quality and the, and the support that they need. I think that that key bit there is the quality. You know, we can we can all go out and other search engines available and Google something and we can find a resource. But how do we know what we're listening to is is good and of quality? And and that comes full circle to that evidence base. You know, OK, it's it's peer evidence, but it's other people that recommend it. Seeing the comments on what other people have said, yeah, that was a really useful resource. That was really good. And that is about that 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 sharing mindset. Um, but I think you know, again, if we're, people listen to this conversation, I think it's that sense of, as well as thinking, well, I'm going to find some places where I can go and get resources that make my life easier, whether it's within the workplace or whether it's within an education setting. You also have to have that mindset of, but there's stuff I'm doing that I might take for granted, but I could share the other way. And I think it's about that development. I would argue the most successful companies within the ed tech space, back to our BET and all the great technology that you would have seen when, when you were down at BET, the most successful ones are the ones that are most effective with co-production. You can't, as a technology company, just magically make a solution for education and assume it will be a perfect fit. In the same way as you can't expect teachers to come up with an idea that will mitigate some of their challenges and magically have all of the IT skills to create what you want. Um, I use that kind of analogy of, you know, which is why it needs to be absolutely educator centric, but you wouldn't build an F1 car based solely on the feedback of the racing driver you kind of need the engineers, the aerodynamicists and so on. Equally, if you built a car with a room full of engineers and nobody actually asked the driver what they thought about it or how it might handle, it's not going to be a successful project. Common sense, you might say. But actually what we have seen over the last couple of years is we've had this kind of real refinement and distilling down that the solutions that are co-produced where actually it's not about the arms race of who does the most, who's got the most features, how all encompassing is the solution, but actually the solutions that are most aligned to the problem that are easiest to use, are most scalable, are device agnostic. The different kinds of priority points we've now got are the ones that actually have the longevity. So suddenly we're moving from, ah, well, I can't just develop 10 more features than my competitor and that makes me the best product. I've actually got to figure out what's going to be easiest to use. And then you get that challenge. How do I add more, but at the same time, make the product easier? And the answer is you work with educators, you work with young people, you look over their shoulder, you see when they're using the mouse where they hover and they lose focus because it's not quite clear where to go. You recognize that if you want to sell to that school and to that school, 
well, one might be iPads and one might be Chromebooks and one might be Windows. And actually what they don't want to do is have to learn a different interface or a different approach on each platform. So we're kind of redefining that. And that's where I think that right at our beginning of our conversation, you know, how do businesses and education work together? Well, the first thing is if you co-produce effectively, businesses get an insights and feedback that allows their products to be refined and improved. That commercially is a win. You've got a better quality product. You've got more chance of being successful with your solution. And schools actually not only develop relationships, which is more important with vendors than just that transaction, you know, how much, thank you very much, goodbye, but actually that long-term relationship, but also invest in technology that will grow and develop with their school and their staff needs. And so, you know, I think BET's a really good example of that where you've got lots and lots of conversations happening across the, I was going to say the table, across the pop-up pod or whatever it might be. Those conversations are all about what do you do? What don't you do? This is my pain points. These are my frustrations. How do we mitigate? Let me come and see it in your school setting. And actually both parties are then benefiting from the conversation. Yeah, and that reminds me very much about what we talked about, I think, last time when we were chatting. It's that sense of you need to create the vision of what it is that you would like and the environment that you would like and then find all of those pieces and find a way of obviously affording it and putting it in and and getting everyone on board to make to make that happen because it's very easy isn't it to get overwhelmed by the fact there are so many different options which would probably all actually work for you you just don't know which one it is and and, and you only have to like say walk around bed and see the, the vast number yeah. of things there I mean, but, we could talk for hours, couldn't we, on digital strategy and digital vision? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think I think part of it, like I said, is that relationship. You know, it's the person that you talk to, and they go, oh, "I think they get me. They understand what that problem is." And and they weren't just telling me the version, their their latest version of what's just come out. This is why we're here. It was much more about the the conversation and the relationships and how that can progress going forward. Because that's the thing we don't know is you know we're, we're trying to solve the problems that we we don't know are going to exist in five years or 10 years or, or however long that's going to be. Yeah, and, and it's a difficult one because on one hand, I might say, well, it's it's easy to identify the, the, the best solutions and vendors because they've been doing it a while. And that seems like an easy thing to say because longevity means people must be sustaining it and buying it and it's being evolved and developed. But it's not as hard and fast as that because there's some amazing innovation and startups that have great solutions and you can't measure the quality of their solution based on the fact that they're new that would be incredibly unfair and that's why i think that evidence conversation can come from so many different parts it can be from you working with them and helping develop the product so you've got that intimate relationship and knowledge about their vision and values and does it align with your school and the plans for the product it can be the peer side it can be taking products and doing comparisons between different classes within your school and having a look and seeing the, the benefits. For many approaches we take is taking technology external and getting products pedagogically evaluated. People like Education Alliance Finland and others where they apply it against the framework and actually look. Now that's another way of getting really good evidence for a vendor and for customers. But ultimately, yes, why would anybody think they're going to be successful in education if they have the concept of like selling a car, you know, I'll give you a price, you get a quick test drive, you take it away and goodbye. It, it's all about developing a relationship. And, and that's where smart vendors realize the closer the relationship, the more you will learn, the more feedback you'll get, and the, the quicker you'll enhance your solution. 
One of the other things I want to pick up on, which I thought was really interesting just a moment ago, was that sense of, like, say, getting feedback from maybe students being involved in a particular mm. technology or, or something that you're doing in school. And one of the things that strikes me, both working in schools and also being a parent, is actually getting that buy-in from pupils across the board you know they're in school because they have to be and there are certain things that light them up but but there's also a lot of things where they're just kind of I'm just here because I have to be and they may or may not (laughs) buy into it in whichever way so because you like say you've got all these different sort of viewpoints how do you think we can sort of light that spark as it were more often or get that buy-in on a way which is not just this is a wow day but this is kind of I can actually start to understand how I can take control of my own learning and my future and and feel like I've got some ownership of it rather than it just being a sort of a treadmill of just eventually I'm going to come out the other end and then we'll see what happens I think it I think actually before you get to the detail it, it starts at the top it's about strength of school leadership we're very used to measuring impact and we can think of technology and solutions that we we purchase and put into our schools of measuring impact always in schools it's about outcomes you know fundamentally it's about progress and attainment and that's how we measure the impact did our children learn more did they progress faster and so on but actually increasingly what we're learning is there's other measures because we need to start thinking that actually technology in ed tech plays a much broader role what about well-being what about social emotional health what about our hard to engage learners just being more engaged what about closing the feedback loop? What about staff well-being? Actually, tools that save them time and efficiency. What about school-to-home communications, whether it's home or the broader community, and staff retention? You know, that's a big pressure on schools at the moment. Now, it doesn't diminish the need for tools to actually have a, you know, a purpose and and have some kind of pedagogical impact. But fundamentally, we need to just broaden that lens a little bit when we're thinking about how do we measure stuff. When it comes to young people, I think there's, there's again, what we've, you know, and I, I by no means would ever claim to be the expert here. There's plenty of people far more wisdom than me on the topic. Um, what we do recognise, though, is that one size doesn't fit all measure is exactly the same with our learners. And so looking at different ways that technology can flex to suit different learning styles. You know, um, one of my roles, chair of an alternative provision academy, we actually had far greater engagement with remote learning than often we had getting some of our learners across the threshold of the school at the start of a traditional school day. Sometimes when we start looking at tools that are gamified, whether it's personalized learning, when you're getting scores building up, actually that can play to certain child's aspirations. When we think about educating and sharing with parents about learning you know we, it's very easy to follow the kind of the mantra well so many hours a day that screen time that's the most you should be doing my argument would be it's what you're doing rather than how long you're doing it for so you know is minecraft a game which is serving no purpose other than to fulfill a child or if you're using minecraft to manage resources and place and space and as our students were doing in one of our nurture groups uh, building a, a mock-up of um, Shakespeare's globe theatre, creating it and then around that building and unpacking the story and using it to inspire. If we go to our early years foundation stage and key stage one students at one of our infant schools where we have a bus that has augmented reality and VR headsets that they use to experience something that they wouldn't have experienced themselves, whether it's a trip to the rainforest or swimming under the sea, that becomes the catalyst for project work, whether it's some creative writing, whether it's language acquisition, whether it's an art project, 
using it as a stimulus so that the ways that we kickstart projects or engage in learning vary. And that's never to suggest that, so therefore technology is always a better way of starting the conversation or inspiring a, a young person, because there's plenty of ways when technology doesn't add any extra value. But where it's appropriate, we've seen different age groups, different learner cohorts, it can facilitate different types of engagement. I think we've seen a real acquisition on some of the personalized learning platforms um, where young people see that not just as, as a as a competition, but that sense of because it, it adapts and if you struggle, it brings you back a couple of stages to help you embed those core skills. It actually builds confidence. Um, and for some of our more vulnerable learners, actually tools that facilitate that regular nurture and feedback from a teacher really builds that sense of security and confidence, which frankly, if you haven't got your SEMH right, then the, the learning goals and catch up that often gets narrated about, it's kind of second base really, isn't it? It really is. And I, and I think just touching on what you said there is the most important thing. Is I think everyone knows that the idea of personalised learning is probably the key to many things. And that doesn't necessarily mean one teacher, one pupil. It, me, it means the pupil actually taking responsibility for themselves as well. But what the technology does, and I think the incredible imagination of the people that are creating various outlets now, is that people can do it in so many different ways and you can learn with that sort of mentorship idea going on whether that's like I say whether it's within AI whether it's a, a member of staff whatever it happens to be it means that you can feel like you're progressing but in a way that works for you and like I say once that sort of one size fits all isn't what you think you're having to do then all of a sudden I guess the buy-in and also the the experience then becomes a much more exciting one. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we hear the conversation about when we talk about AI and some of the new tools, you know, it's going to replace teachers, right? And you kind of have to just pause and just hold your, hold your, your initial reaction and kind of then clarify. Well, no, I mean, the, the, the role of technology is to facilitate, to empower great teaching and learning, which will never be re replaced that key human interaction and communication. Some of the great tools that are available as visual resources, interactive experiences that will stimulate their positive impact, if we don't want it to just be an experience and a fun session, is all about how a teacher weaves that into the narration and their own lesson plans and their, their learning to make sure that it's actually something that creates a foundation or something that can be built on to, to, to meet the curriculum framework. So it's always going to be supplementing it. But I do think when we think about the last couple of years, for some young people, it's about reigniting a love of learning. And that can be for young people who are struggling with their literacy, providing books that come to life or adapt the language, depending on the reading stage of the learner that just encourage that love of reading. Or it can just be that catalyst, particularly, sorry, we have some schools that come, a cohort from very deprived areas, just providing them in an augmented way, experiences that just create the wow. And it's the wow experience that then stimulates them to want to capture to write about it to remember some of the key things they've seen and share with their parents and for our younger learners just fostering that parental engagement is, is in itself becomes an extra an extra benefit and again as i say there are plenty of people who are far better qualified to talk about where there's the, the pros and cons and how to weave it in but i think 
you know we've we've seen a lot over the last couple of years where different narrative comes about what teachers should be doing this is the the rubric that schools should be doing whether it was for remote learning the combination of blended learning how we should be prioritizing on catch up and where we should be spending our money at some point we should just pause and say you know what we trust these people as professionals with our children give them a range of tools and trust them to use it when it's appropriate with the right cohort because a different class of kids are the same age group it won't be a natural everything is exactly the same and the schools have been more successful over the ones i believe that have empowered teachers to try new things take risks adapt based on their cohort rather than follow a very prescriptive standard as if everybody's going to respond in the same way to the technology um, and i think that also just masks or, or presents a, a more important message which is just about a bit of respect back to teachers about what we expect of our teachers as these people that are uh, social workers uh, uh, our wow moment creators <laughs> as well as our educators and everything else that wraps around it and i think that those layers are really important aren't they and i, and I think that's where these conversations really are so important because as you quite rightly said, you know, you say AI and immediately you think of a certain lesson or a certain way that's going to work or a certain way that's going to be in education. And it's only when you then sort of have the sub points, which is kind of, well, this is supportive or this is just a way of visualizing something you couldn't necessarily do in your immediate community or, or this is a tool that your school is going to have, have access to in a certain way. And then it, it completely changes people's perspective. So maybe, I don't know whether we need different language or whether we just need a more sort of sort of blended idea of the fact this isn't black and white there's all these other shades of gray that you need to understand as well yeah big time i mean i think the, the challenge sometimes is just the, the concept of ed tech for some is exciting and others is scary and we always go through a little bit of a journey this isn't a new ground sadly but let's think looking ahead what are we here talking about now we talk about ai and ar and vr it, now the next thing is the metaverse and suddenly it's like, well, depending on your perspective on what you know, it sounds like it's a hugely exciting opportunity or something crazy scary. Who's going to police and manage that? And the reality is it's a bit of both. It, it's an opportunity to provide experiences to young people that they could perhaps never access, depending on, on their background, the school they go to or lots of other factors. But it could also be something that could be massively abused. We worry about the concern of data. One thing that I'm very passionate about, the Digital Poverty Ambassador and the Digital Poverty Alliance, I think when we think about new technology, there's a risk that it can level the playing field between the haves and have nots in terms of experiences. But there's also a risk it could accelerate and exaggerate because we don't want to be in a position where half the young people in our schools are able to access the metaverse in five years from now and access rich learning experiences and resources and the other half not we want it to be consistent and when we come full circle back to that how do we connect business with education and facilitate one of the common levers which sadly involves government as well is connectivity because we need to have that consistency that any child no matter where they're born in the country throughout their educational journey has equal opportunity to access and utilize the technology and resources that we identify as having a positive impact and that includes not just sadly the, the broadband connectivity but we can think recently government have very kindly supported well over a million devices into our schools to help mitigate some of the challenges during the pandemic 
and hopefully it's public money they're all being well used and interwoven into teaching and learning on a daily basis in our schools and then four years from now most of them will be due for renewal some will have already passed away with broken buttons and screens and other bits and all those schools will be saying well how based on our budgets are we going to replace all of that additional kit so there's a risk that we acquire all these digital skills and just when they become embedded and part of the norm we find that we have to unuse them because we don't have the funding model to take them forward and suddenly we've joined the circle with the so just like how we teach and what we want to teach that balance between skills and knowledge acquisition and our broader personal skills that long-term plan also needs to include funding so we can make decisions now we can invest in things that we know we can sustain for the next 10 or 15 years because it would be a really bad use of public money to buy a load of things train people to use it effectively and then just when they've got the confidence we say you know what we can't afford to replace them so you'll have to go back and that's why all these things are interwoven in my eyes and you have to bring stakeholders together from so many different viewpoints to try and move the conversation forward and i guess that kind of brings me back to to my conversation in terms of having that person that's leading the way that sort of bob geldof idea of just saying look there's a problem here and and what are we going to do about it and i think like you say the answer is it's actually it's interwoven it's many factors it's having a long a long view of what it is that we're trying to do because like you said in that in that funding idea if it's independent from the government four or five year cycle you know it can be it can be public money it could be private money it could be invested it could be all sorts of things if it just enables that to go on but like you say you need all of the people behind something which they all believe in in order to have that longevity yeah sometimes i'm not always sure about we need the one voice i think actually one thing that is developing quite rapidly um in in the uk education space is consistency and uniformity of voice i think it's that network stronger than the node mindset and actually there are more voices aligned that actually lots of this is not rocket science if we turned around to everybody who worked in education or in commercial world and said your salary for next year is x and we'll decide in a year's time what your salary is going to be you wouldn't make any long-term commitments you wouldn't take out a mortgage you wouldn't buy a car on finance you'd just use what you knew this year to make short-term decisions well if you kept doing that year on year you'd be far less financially effect cost effective than if you knew at the start where you were going and so actually this can be a narrative which is it's not just about you having to spend more it's actually about by making some of these changes we could actually be more cost effective we could actually be more joined up by being more strategic in our thinking and at the same time if we allowed businesses to have and fostered closer dynamics and relationships would also make sure when they leave post 16 post 18 that they have the skills that gave them the best possible opportunity to become taxpaying workers in our across our communities and 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 hello that's another saving to the state and that will help fund more into education so these things are all joined up and it's really hard to to tackle them in isolation what part of the reason why i'm very passionate about what the fed are doing is i think it's one where we do bring a lot of stakeholder voices together but there's plenty of others that are doing a, a sterling job of trying to fly the flag and keep that narrative going and just to sort of wrap up do you think there's a way of of having that narrative like i say rather than a single person to be 
almost the loudest voice so that when we do have the sort of i don't know an, another policy come in or another idea which we know is going to be short term th- there, there's enough of that overall narrative that people can sort of see it in perspective of that and actually still feel that that sense of yeah. control like you said that we know it's going to be okay despite sort of the here and there yeah I, I, it is really difficult I, i've never been a fan of the loudest voices the one you listen to that read that doesn't always resonate with me but i i get the point you're making i think the challenge I, I, we have is that there has to be a degree of realism which is to propose change to propose a long-term plan whether it's for education whether it's the role of digital and within schools and the funding based around that proposals have actually got to be something that are um, likely to spark the appetite of ministers and legislators. We can't just assume that the way that politics and the way that the government works will will magically change to suit the challenge in education. So I think it's about being realistic and about being tactical, that we can't just shift the dial on everything all at once. We've got to look at what are the key the key building blocks what are the things that we would do initially that could have the biggest impact and if we start to see those kind of small wins having a positive impact that are measurable and provide the opportunity for the positive pr and press that goes around them that that appeases the legislators and the politicians that around that then as long as it's moving in the direction that actually benefits our young people then it's a worthy win so in a way, what you do, I think what, what the, really the, the mindset is, is pull together as many mindsets and as many experiences, evident as much as you can, suggestions about things that would have a real positive impact and for a long-term strategy, and then trust politicians that they will look, along with their advisors, of course, with their ministries, look at that research and perhaps identify elements that are realistic and doable that will become the building blocks so it's it is a long-term plan in many ways but you either take that strategy or you admit defeat before you start and that's just not an option is it absolutely not and i think the key takeaway for me always is the fact that the only thing that makes a difference today is whatever you decide to do so whether that's oh, having man. the conversation if it's i've i have this skill i'd like to do it within a school or i have this product or or, or or an idea that i'm trying to do that i'd like to work with you on have that conversation do it rather than don't do it don't have to see all the steps to know where it's going to go but just open that door and then if everybody does that then i guess we have a sea of people that are all heading in that general direction like we talked about and then we see where that goes it's almost like we're we're doing what teachers tell our, our students we're, we're modeling best practice if you want people to act the same way and to to follow and give up their time and get involved you've got to take a lease you've got to do it yourself you know and then people will see well if they're willing to do it and they're sharing maybe i can too well it's been a fascinating conversation and as we said before we probably could be here all day so <laughs> um, I, th- I think we've managed to summarize it and, and and talk about all these things um as best we possibly can and i think like you say it comes down to that personal responsibility and i think um it's someone who i know is 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 doing that on a, on a daily basis and supporting so many people thanks for sharing your thoughts but also for all the great work that you do thank you it's my pleasure always good to talk with you mark thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community with over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. 
Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.